This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Well, good morning. I'm Jamie Nato, and today our scripture reading is going to be from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. You can find this on page 809 in your pew Bibles. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Jamie. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, really glad that you guys are with us. I'm going to make a quick announcement uh, with these words still in your ears of those who mourn, those who are meek, those who have a hunger and thirst for things to be made right, those who seek after mercy, those who long for peace. We have been in a conversation the last couple of Wednesday nights about God and suffering. Uh, It hasn't been an exhaustive conversation by any means, but just trying to make space for allowing us as a community to acknowledge some of the loss we've experienced, some of the suffering that we've had, um, some of the questions that we have, and really invite God into what already exists inside our souls. So we don't have to hide where we are. We can actually just say, God, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I'm feeling this. He knows what you've experienced. He knows what you're already feeling. And so we've just been having this conversation about how would you talk to God about what you feel, when, especially when it comes to things of mourning and places of loss and where you feel kind of this bankruptcy in spirit. And so we said it wasn't an exhaustive conversation, but we wanted to keep it going. And so we're going to offer two kind of small groups coming out of these last couple of weeks. So one will meet on Thursday nights beginning this Thursday. It's going to be called Through the Valley. It'll be taking this theme of Psalm 23 and asking, where does God meet us in those places of trauma, those places of like deep loss, those places of sadness? And we learned on Wednesday there's like capital T trauma and there's lowercase T trauma, all of that really matters. And so it's about a four-week class. Uh, it'll be a small group setting with lots of participation. You get a chance to interact and ask questions and relate to each other in a group setting. Because one of the beautiful things about the way God made us is uh, that we actually heal in relationships the same way we've been wounded in relationships. When you think about like your greatest needs and greatest um, highs and lows, the things that have shaped you, there's been people around, or, or the absence of people have actually shaped you. So, so it's a people-shaped experience that we have. And so our, our wounds come with people, and so our healing gets a chance to as well. So, so that group will be um, kind of processing together, hey, how do I acknowledge trauma? How do I think about that? How do I bring God into that? And again, if that word trauma feels really intense, and you're saying, well, I just have had a little bit of loss, I think the loss you've experienced really matters. And so if that resonates with you, 
I would encourage you to come. And there'll be a second group that will meet uh, a week from today on Sunday afternoons at 4 p.m. Uh, they're going to work through this book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's a, a conversation through the Lament Psalms. How, how do we use the language the Bible has given us to express our hearts back to God? So they'll use the book as the primary text, and that'll be the launch pad into lots of conversation and sharing and where you are and how you can grow and you can learn from there. So you can sign up for both of those online. would encourage you to take a step with us. And again, I think all of us have experienced a ton this last year. And it didn't just start in 2020, right? You've experienced a lot throughout your life. And so we are um, a church that wants to be honest about that. We don't have all the answers. We don't have simple answers to really complicated things. We don't just put little band-aids on top of deep, deep questions. But God has spoken. And there's something about journeying together and walking together that, that brings some healing. And so even with this text in our mind, I wanted to encourage you towards those expressions. So, so uh, Thursday night at 6.30 and then Sundays at 4. You can get all that information on our website, but that's what's behind those. Okay, hey, let me just pray for us, and we'll, um, we'll work our way through this text. Jesus, we uh, have said a lot of amazing things about you already. We've acknowledged your greatness. We have celebrated your blood that washed away all of our sin, that gave us a, an opportunity to be known by you in a way that wasn't just judgment and wrath, but was as your children? What must you be like that your plan always was to step into our place and die the death we should have died, to atone for all of our dysfunction and sin and brokenness and rebellion, all the things that the scriptures say make us your enemies and lead to death in our souls? You died, and you took that upon yourself. So thank you for that. I pray that what we've sung and what we've prayed already wouldn't feel like um, part one and now we're on part two. Would you connect the prayers we've prayed and the songs that we've sung to this text because uh, they are about you and what you've done and who you um, welcome into your kingdom and what your kingdom does inside of us. So would you give us a cross-shaped, a a, a blood-soaked understanding of how to engage this text because that will lead us towards hope, that will set us free, that will actually transform and change us. So for my brothers and sisters who are carrying a really heavy load, would you minister to them this morning? For those who are wondering if you're even real, would you speak to them and would you call them to yourself? And for those who just feel kind of numb, maybe it's a passive numbness where they're just going through the motions or maybe it's an overt numbness they've chosen where they just are here in body but their hearts are already somewhere else on purpose, would you, would you call them? Would you awaken them? Would you um, show your love to them? So God, God, would you speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, we started the Sermon on the Mount last week, and we spent some time on this first section called the Beatitudes, and we said we're going to do two parts. Last week, we really focused on this idea of who the kingdom of God is for, and we wrestled with how we've heard a passage like this before. So if you're familiar with the church or with Jesus, or you've kind of grown up around the things of God, maybe it's a really familiar passage. I would guess if you've been in church 50 times, you've heard something around this passage, this whole Sermon on the Mount. It's actually Jesus's most famous sermon. And maybe if you're not familiar with church, maybe it strikes you as really odd. You're like, man, I'm here to figure out how to make my life better. I'm here to figure out what God wants from me. And these words like mourning and poor in spirit and meekness and hungering and thirsting, maybe they don't like make sense to you. You're wondering, like, how does that fit with what God asked? If God's immoral and holy, how does this kind of framework of sadness actually engage my heart? So maybe it's confusing, or maybe it's like super familiar. 
But we, we stopped and said the Sermon on the Mount is aimed at asking the question, what is the blessed life? What, what is the good life? What is the life that leads to flourishing? And there's a philosopher named Dallas Willard. He says that, that most philosophers have wrestled with the question, what is the good life? And who is truly a good person? So everybody throughout history has been asking, all right, what, what is it supposed to be about? And who are the people that, that are rewarded or are good or are noble or are virtuous? And that's actually where the Sermon on the Mount is aimed to take us. It's aimed to speak to us about what God wants from us, what he is asking of us, what it means to live in the kingdom. So philosophers might ask a different question about virtue. The Bible asks, how do we align ourselves with the kingdom of God. And we've been in context, right? So Jesus has already been teaching. He's already been on the scene. He's already done miracles. He's already called out to people. The first thing he said was to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. And so we've said it's not this first ethical commands and demands that we must align ourselves with and all the things that we do to make ourselves right with God. Jesus actually calls us to himself and calls us to turn away, to repent, and to respond to him. That's what he's already said. So this context, we hit this passage and has to shape how we hear these words. And I say that because there are people who have seen this primarily as a list of requirements to get into the kingdom. You must be poor in spirit to get into the kingdom. You must mourn over your sin to get into the kingdom. You must be meek enough to get into the kingdom. You must hunger and thirst for righteousness enough to get into the kingdom. You must show mercy. You must be a peacemaker. You must do these things to get into the kingdom as if that was the entry point. And maybe as I said that, that's like how you've heard this text. But, but we talked last week that it's, it's less a, a starting point or, or a standard you have to meet, and it's more a proclamation of good news. This word, beatitude or blessed, it comes from the Latin, and it just simply means to be blessed, and we talked about it means blessed or be happy, which those are kind of confusing words, and so a better translation is good news to you, or you are in a favored position if you feel like this, and and maybe as I said that you weren't convinced last week, and so let me just back up a little bit. Flip over to Isaiah 61. It's in the Old Testament. Isaiah 61, if you're in a pew Bible, it's on page 620. So Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, and most scholars would say this teaching of Isaiah is the background for what Jesus starts and says. And there's lots of reasons for that. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands in the temple in the synagogue, and he unrolls a scroll and begins to read. And it's this passage, and he says, this is being fulfilled in your presence right now. So Jesus starts his ministry and references Isaiah 61 in the Gospel of Luke. And, and Luke has a version of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got to be a little bit careful because it's quite a bit different. And so when I say version, I don't mean like a, a corrupted copy or there's competing views. I mean, Jesus probably taught this lots of times. In Matthew, he says he's on this mountain, and in Luke, it says he's on this plain. And Luke is about half the size of Matthew. And Here's the deal. Jesus would have taught these things lots of times. Good preachers repeat themselves over and over and over again, which I find a ton of comfort in. So Jesus would have taught these things lots of times in lots of ways. And one of those expressions is in Luke, and one of them is in Matthew. And in fact, Matthew has about five different discourse sessions, right, where where Matthew is showing us what Jesus taught. So he taught lots of things. It's not the sum total of it, but Isaiah 61 is the background for the way Jesus starts. Just listen to what he says. So he says, the Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. I came to pronounce, hey, good news to you who are poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of prisons to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance, right? That idea of justice of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, right? Take their ashes, and instead of ashes, instead of mourning, give them this beautiful spirit, right? This garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness and planted of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So you hear these themes of mourning and of being poor in spirit, of this vengeance and this desire for righteousness. So scholars would say that Jesus has this in his mind as he stands up, and he's basically saying, hey, I'm the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was calling you to, right? So he says in there, I came to preach good news. Because here's the deal. If this is a list of requirements that you have to meet, not only does it feel strange, it's actually impossible to do. How could you be merciful enough or mourn enough or hunger and thirst enough if this was a standard that you had to meet? It actually falls in a space of condemnation or at least pushes you away or it further shames you. But if it is good news, hey, if you feel spiritually bankrupt, good news, the kingdom of God is for you. Hey, if you find yourself in a spot where it's hard to get out of bed, the sadness is just so heavy, good news, the kingdom of God came for you. If you feel meek and lowly, if you are longing for in ways that are almost visceral and you can taste it in your mouth for righteousness to happen, hey, good news, because it's happening now in your presence through the coming of the kingdom. So I think we started with this idea that Jesus says, hey, this is not a standard to keep, but an invitation. It's a comforting invitation. And again, we said the immediate crowd, he had just been healing them. He had been drawing them to himself. They're coming out of all kinds of brokenness. And they're wondering, is there a place for me in the kingdom? And he begins to just say, oh, hey, great news. And we said it's not just like lowly positions. There's some noble things in this list, right? None of them are powerful, but not all of them are pitiful either. There's this interesting mixture in the list, but they are an invitation and a comforting call to come into the kingdom. Okay, so now the big question is, all right, if that's all they are, why are we doing two weeks on it? And actually, I want to title this sermon, What the Kingdom of God Produces in Us. So if last week was, who is the kingdom of God for? This week, I want to talk about what the kingdom of God produces in us. And now you go, wait a second, you're contradicting yourself. And here's the great news. Well, maybe I am. That's not the great news. The great news is actually, it's like, um, like wedding vows that have a particular meaning in the moment, but then there's lots and lots of ways you can apply them. Throughout the Bible, we see commands that have a call to trust God, and that's the entry point. That's how we kind of engage them, and they also have an ethical framework for them, right? Because if he's saying, hey, good news to you people, we should ask, well, then how do I respond from that kind of heart? What does it do to actually shape me? And so I love doing weddings, and when I do a wedding, I'll always ask the couple to write their own vows or at least choose their own vows. And we'll tell them, hey, go to a bookstore or download online like all these different versions of vows and ancient Chinese vows and modern Irish vows. And you can pick your own vows. But I want you to have these words that you've chosen, not just traditional words, but words that you've chosen so that when you stand on that altar and you pledge love to each other, it's actually coming from your heart. Right. So it's really sweet and all those things. In a wedding, I try to make that really personable. I also try to like suck all the romance out of a room in a wedding to say, hey, you can't do this. It's impossible, which is a super downer on those moments. They're like, dang, dude, we're all dressed up and now you're telling us we can't even accomplish this. So I'm not saying, hey, take these vows so you can keep them perfectly, but they stand in front of each other and look each other in the eye and they repeat back words to each other. Right? And they're words of fidelity, words of commitment, 
words of a promising to forgive, right? And so they'll say, you know, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife uh, from this day forward, save myself only for you in sickness or in health, in richer or in poorer. And, and what they're saying in those moments is regardless of what happens, I'm committed to you, right? So you should stop and go, what is the purpose of those vows? Well, it's a pledge in that moment of the way they're going to love each other. Okay, but also in a wedding, I'll turn to the crowd and say, hey, if you're married, would you just reach over and grab a hand of the spouse? Not like any spouse, your spouse next to you. Would you reach over and grab their hand? And as you hear them take their vows, would it remind you of vows that you've once taken? So, so now they're pledging their love to each other, but it has the effect in the room to remind us who are married of what we vowed to. And I imagine every time that we do that on a wedding, there are people that had a fight on the way into the wedding. There are people who've been in a, a series of years where they've been cold. There's folks who are in the middle of affairs. There's people who have filed for a divorce. There's people who, who feel hopeless in their marriage. And so as they take those vows, that hits the room in a really different sort of way, depending on where they are. So maybe it's a correction. Maybe it's like a rebuke and a reminder to them of vows they've taken that they've stepped away from. Maybe it's like a doubling down on commitment to say, that's right, I promised no matter what happened, I was going to be faithful to you. Maybe it's like they're, they're, they just got married like a month before that's happened, like where I've done like roommates' weddings back to back a month later. And so somebody's in that honeymoon phase and they're like glowing and they reach over and grab hands. And so it has this kind of throwing fuel on the fire of what they already feel. Right? But the, the vows themselves affect the room in different ways. And I'll say to the couple in premarital counseling, hey, you're going to come back to these vows. Like exchange them again on anniversaries. And there'll be moments where the ring that represents those vows, you'll be in a tough spot. And you just need to like rub your thumb across that ring and say, that's right, I committed to something here. So it'll be a, a call to perseverance. It'll be an invitation to repentance. It'll be a correction. It'll be an inspiration. It'll be lots of things. But it's first a pledge of their love. And if it was a contract that they were doing, hey, I'm going to perfectly keep this and you perfectly keep this, they would be in breach of contract almost immediately, right? So it's not a contract, but it does set an expectation or a vision for the kind of marriage they want to have. Are you tracking with that? So vows have like a meaning, but they have lots of layers to it. I think what Jesus does here is the invitation to, into the kingdom. Right? It's the beginning of the sermon. So he's starting the sermon saying, hey, everybody is welcome, but it goes past an invitation to a few more purposes, one of which is a correction of like expectations, to hear this list actually puts us in a spot where we realize there's something different about the kingdom of God than I anticipated. And actually, we'll see people wrestle with Jesus' teachings throughout the Gospel of Matthew because what he says the kingdom of God is about and entrance into the kingdom that's through him by faith just rocks people. And they go, no, 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 I thought it was through my good behavior. I thought I impressed you with what I did. And so this invitation has a correction to it as well. And it also has an instruction to it, right? It actually casts a vision for us of what it is to actually walk with God. Who are the blessed people who are in this favored position? So it teaches us a little bit about what God would have for us, right? So it's first an invitation, and then it's a correction, and then there's some instruction. And last week I labored at the beginning to talk about the way the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, partner with repentance, turning away from false loves, and moving towards walking by the Spirit is how transformation happens. Right, so here's the call of God by His grace, turning away from the sin that I've indulged instead, and now walking by the Spirit. And that, that kind of is this pattern, right? Here's the good news, the gracious news of God welcoming you. 
And then there's a correction that happens in it as we engage the text and go, where do I line up with this? And then there's this instruction, this walking by the Spirit. Right? So transformation actually happens in our souls as we encounter this text. So we did invitation last week. So this, this morning, I want to do correction and instruction. But I labored to say all that because I don't want you to hear first correction or first instruction. Because if you tie this on as a standard that you have to keep to be loved, it will crush you. And it will be a weird, twisted kind of crushing because the language in it is by itself kind of on the bottom already. It's about mourning and being me. So you'll find yourself in this perpetual trap of having to do more and having to be sadder and having to be more broken, having to be more empty. And you'll find yourself in a space all the way of despairing because you simply cannot keep it. And here's the great news. If that's where you've been, good news to you. The kingdom of God is for you. And the one who's teaching this actually gave his life for us. So start with who is giving us this sermon, Jesus himself. And what his mission was, was to come and rescue us. And it's by his death on the cross that we actually enter into the kingdom by faith. And so hear the good news. If you do feel crushed because you have seen it as a standard to keep, oh, the gospel is great news to you. That God has already kept all the commands for you. And what he asks you to do is simply turn to him and then follow him. And not perfectly, not in a contractual way, not in ways that if you fail, now you're no longer loved, but in ways that inspire and begin to change you. All right, so, so first then, correction. Look with me back in chapter 5, verse 2 of Matthew. It's on page 809 if you've closed your pew Bible. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, and I want you just to notice this structure. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then if you're in the Pew Bible, flip over a page and look in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this first correction, what we see is our goal is not to live moral lives. It's to engage with the kingdom of heaven. Who is blessed? It's both those who are poor in spirit and those who are persecuted. There's actually eight things that Jesus will key off of at the beginning of this sermon. I think those two bookends, verse 3 and verse 10, kind of frame things for us. And the next six explain or describe what it looks like to be in the kingdom, right? So he says, the kingdom of God is for those who are poor in spirit. The kingdom of God is for those who are persecuted. And then he says in verse 4, those who are mourning, that they shall be comforted, right? So you have this, the kingdom of God is for those, and now you have this future thing, they, they shall be comforted. What's the kingdom of God about? It's about comforting those who are brokenhearted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is the kingdom of God about? It's about you being in relationship with God. To inherit the earth is to be where God is in the land. It's relational language for first century Jews. To be meek in spirit is to be in the space where you inherit the earth, which is this perpetual relationship with God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What's the kingdom of God about? It's about satisfying that deep soul hunger you have for things to be made right. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. What's the kingdom about? It's about giving you mercy that you desperately need. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's the kingdom of God about? It's about purity, and it's about you being in relationship, you seeing God for who he really is. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is the kingdom of God about? It's about, it's about peace, and it's about you being adopted as daughters and sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we started with those who have nothing, poor in spirit, and those who are willing to give away everything. What's the kingdom of God about? It's about this treasure that you have in the relationship you have with God that you're willing to sacrifice everything for, even your very own life. And before we miss that, what he does in verses 11 and 12 is just summarize that again. It's like a record scratch so that we don't miss it. Hey, and blessed are those who, or blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's the person who's blessed. And you just go like, if I had to keep that as a command, how do I keep that? How do I get persecuted enough so that I can be good enough so that I can be loved by God? It's not a command you keep. It's a vision of the good life that says he is my treasure. And if everything else is taken away from me, I still love him. And I can rejoice and be glad, verse 12, because my eyes are to the future. Right? Great is my reward in heaven. And this is the way it's always been. They've persecuted the prophets who've gone before me. Okay, so here's the correction. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of the world that you and I were born into and absorbed. What Jesus does in this picture is not give us standards to keep, but he paints a picture for us of what it means to relate to God, of what God is trying to do, about what God came for, about what it means to actually be in a relationship with him. And the correction is the jarring nature of how upside down these things are. The vocabulary is actually not very difficult. Where we get tripped up in interpreting this is if we say, well, these are commands I have to keep, so then how do I be poor in spirit enough? So scholars will spill a ton of ink trying to explain how you can keep that command. But if you don't do that, if you just say this is a vision for who the kingdom of God is for, and as I see that vision, I can encounter that vision with what I've normally been living my life to, and I can repent and turn and go, wait a second, it's not about my merit. Wait a second, it's not about me being good enough. Well, it's not about me using people to make myself feel better. It's not about the things that I accomplish. It's about what Christ has accomplished for me. So my meekness and my mourning and my brokenness and my hunger and thirsting, those things are actually assets because they help me actually enter into the kingdom of God because I see my need. They set the expectations of what it means for us to relate to God. So there's a correction in that vision, right? So these are not like cards that we've been dealt, like some get poor in spirit, some get merciful, some, some get mourning, and some of you have an extra dose of, of hard things, and some of you have an extra dose of good things, and so you have to play with a hand you're dealt. It's not that. These are more like colors that we paint with in the kingdom of God to say, these are the values of the kingdom, and you get to see the portrait there in its wholeness and ask, where does that sit with my heart? How does that measure up to the things I've always been striving for? Where do I fit into this list when it comes to things I'm trying to accomplish or earn or demand? Places where I've ranked myself and I've ranked others. The correction comes in this beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is about and what it produces. And not measuring you on a scale of points, but in a way that captures your imagination. You get to move towards what the kingdom of God is about and who it is for. And so we should just ask, how does that actually work? What are you saying, Chris? Are you saying it's not an entry point? It's not commands that I keep, and it's an invitation. But if I see it, then it becomes commands. Like, I'm a little bit confused. Let me go to another passage just to help us. Flip over to another New Testament writer. This is another follower of Jesus. This is Peter. Let's flip over to 2 Peter. It's on page 1018 if you're in the Pew Bible. So Peter, we've already been introduced to him. He's one of the kind of inner circle disciples, not one of Jesus' favorites necessarily, but one who had proximity to Jesus. 
We see him actually suffering a lot. We see him being really bold in some moments and actually rebelling and denying God in other moments. So we read Peter's story and we can relate to it and go, oh man, he has super high highs and very, very low lows. And as a, as a leader in the early church who's been changed by God's grace, he writes some letters to first century Christians about what it means to follow after him. And so the second letter, Second Peter, starting in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, he writes this. And see if this sounds familiar. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, like live a character-shaped life, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And if these qualities are yours in increasing measure, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that last verse, if you have these things, that's the good life. This keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful. This is what good people do. This is who is virtuous. This is what you actually need and you long for. And the list resonates with us. And some of them are familiar to the Beatitudes or other things taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but Peter says, hey, make every effort. Strive after this. This is the portrait, right? And whoever lacks these qualities, he says. This is where the zinger comes. He says, if, these, if you have these qualities in verse 8 and are increasing in them, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, because, a change, a difference. For, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that they are blind, having forgotten that they have been cleansed from their former sins. And so Peter writes this, and you just go, like, wait a second, hold on. Here's this virtuous list. I get it. If what you're saying is God wants me to perform amazing so that I can be applauded and have this good life so that I don't have an ineffective life or an unfruitful life, that's what I long for. So how do I do it? He says, stop and gaze and look onto deeply what Christ has done for you by his grace on the cross where he cleansed you from all your former sins. Okay, so this portrait doesn't now put a law on top of us. It actually sets us free. What Peter is saying and that that Jesus will lay out for us throughout the best of the Gospel of Matthew is that as we look to Jesus, this portrait becomes more and more beautiful and we feel drawn to what it means to be fully human and following after God in the kingdom of God. And the nearsightedness, like focusing on those things, right? It would be like these qualities are, uh, they're a means to another end of being in relationship with God, but we make them an end to themselves, right? So the nearsighted vision, I can only see what's up close. I can't see what's far away. And he says, the way you correct your vision is by looking at what Christ has done and remembering that he's cleansed you from your sin. How does the portrait or the correction function for us? It reminds us of God's grace, and that actually begins to change us. And we see things all throughout the New Testament, the same pattern. So Titus chapter 3 will say, the grace of God has appeared. The good news of the gospel, the grace of God has appeared. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's repentance. And it trains us to live upright and holy lives. So we trust in Jesus. Helps me turn away from the things that I'm not trusting in, that are they're not about him, they're not about his kingdom, and turn towards him. That is the biblical Pattern And so this beatitude list functions that way for us. Here's an invitation. Who's the kingdom of God for? It's for those who know they have a need. And the picture just rocks me. It jars me. It's so different than anything else I've ever heard my entire life. And so whether you grew up in a home that was really affluent and successful, or you grew up in poverty, you grew up with parents that were intact, or you grew up in multiple marriage situations, you have heard your whole life, this is what you must do to be loved. So, of course, we apply that to God. And this portrait now changes us. It rocks us. It 
It adjusts us. It actually corrects us because this portrait helps free me not to chase things that I've always been chasing, thinking if I had those, then I would be a good person and I would have the flourishing life. It reorients these because these are dependent things. These are things that, that are close to Jesus. They're ones that are actually really honest. They're places that see me for who I really am so that I can see God for who he really is. That's the way this list functions. All right, so, so there's this correction. Now let's talk about the instruction. What, what is the instruction? How do I actually begin to apply this, right? And it's like wedding vows. I'm not making a contract. I'm not saying these are the demands. I'm not saying if I do this, God will love me. I'm saying this is what it means to be married. This is what somebody who's given their life to somebody else actually lives into. So it inspires me. It reminds me. It corrects me. It holds me. It keeps me grounded and centered. Let it function like that for you. And here's the deal, as we kind of come to the end of this time, I'm not going to spend a ton of time through every single one because they're actually not that um, complicated in their understanding. And the complication comes in their application, which Jesus will lay out for us in the rest of the sermon. Remember, this is his introduction. He's just getting started. He's rattling off some things that he'll actually um, unpack for us throughout the rest of the sermon. So here's a challenge. I would love for you to just read the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in one sitting sometime this week. And, and as you read it, look for these themes that he lays out for us in the Beatitudes. And just ask God, what are you asking of me? What does it look like to follow you? Because there are commands, right? There are commands to do these things, but they're located first in a vision of what it means to be related to God, like rooted in what it means for us to be invited into a relationship because of what he's done, right? So that grace, that repentance, and now walking by the Spirit. But let's just walk through them, if that makes sense. If you're saying, all right, I'm not now asking to flip it around and go, okay, here's all the requirements. I'm saying, so what does it look like? Because God didn't just save me to turn away from sin. I'm supposed to turn to something, right? Flourishing looks like something. Kingdom has ethics. There is a real king with a real kingdom, so it actually means something in real life. So what does it actually mean? Look with me in verse 3, and we'll just kind of walk through these categories. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so what is poor in spirit? It's this understanding of my spiritual bankruptcy. Luke would just say, blessed are the poor. And the Bible often compares our material wealth with our spiritual health. And it will say, there's something about your money that's tied to your soul. Because we tend to cover over our spiritual bankruptcy with material things. And Jesus will say it's actually hard for the wealthy to come into the kingdom because they can live their lives in such a way that they can numb themselves or they can entertain themselves or they can defend themselves and think they don't actually have a need. They're not really dependent. So, so this is about spiritual bankruptcy, but, but there's a tie to material things. And in a, a place like Johnson County, there's a, a need for us constantly to be saying, hey, our wealth that we've acquired, that we're chasing, that we've been told we need, can actually get in the way of us giving our whole hearts over to God. That's not what this sermon is about, but there's a, a way that our wealth is tied to our spiritual poverty. And Jesus says, hey, when it comes to following me, you have to understand your spiritual bankruptcy and live as one who's not bringing amazing things to God so that God would love him. You bring nothing to the equation, and that's where you can get everything. The spiritual poverty actually sets us up to receive from God. So, so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, because that's how you get into the kingdom. 
I couldn't do enough. I couldn't earn enough. I couldn't acquire enough. I couldn't be good enough. I couldn't buy enough. I couldn't give enough away. There's nothing I could do to make myself right with God. I was utterly bankrupt. Oh, good news for you. Because that actually sets you up to trust Jesus. Our number, or verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you know exactly what that means. It means sadness. It means loss. It means longing. It's mourning over our sin and our suffering. And again, it's not a command to be really sad. He's saying, hey, good news to you that are already sad. Because what happens in the kingdom of God is you trust Jesus, you can engage the sad things of the world, and because you're not trusting in those things to make you okay, you can endure. It's not that the things that he's laying out for us now become a different kind of command. What he's saying is if you actually trust the king, then when you, space, when you face spaces of sadness and loss, you can sit in that and not feel abandoned by God because he is your treasure. It's not a command. It's a reality of our hearts. So this is who we are. We are broken. We are sad in our suffering and our, our humanity. And Jesus came into that space to rescue us. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. And this word is the absence of pretense. It, it has a, a thing of humility. It's a relationship to other people. Blessed are those who see themselves rightly so that they can engage other people with humility and with charity and with, and with meekness. And you can understand how that would work, right? Because if you thought that you could boast in your good works or in your identity, it would set you up to compare and compete with other people. So he says, oh, blessed are those who are meek, because those are the ones who actually inherit the earth. Those are the ones who, who are welcomed into the kingdom. Again, I'm not spending a ton of time here because Jesus is going to unpack them throughout the rest of his sermon, but, but it's important just to say there's something about humility that's required for me to see myself rightly, not shamefully, not with low self-esteem, but to see myself rightly so that I can actually turn to God. So in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And there's a present, right? The kingdom of heaven is for you, and this will happen in the future. You can endure right now where things aren't the way they're supposed to be, knowing that in the future God will set all things to right. And I love the language of hungering and thirsting. It's this visceral desire. It's not just acknowledgement or agreement. Yeah, righteousness matters. It's a good concept. It's a longing and an aching for God to set things right. Those who are in the kingdom of God, who are following the king, who know he came to set captives free, long to see captives set free who know he came to actually liberate the broken and the poor, long to see the liberation of the broken and the poor. It's like a hunger they have that they can actually taste, asking God to do now on the earth what he will do in his kingdom. Make it happen now, Lord, is how we live our lives as people who have been united to the king. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. By the compassion that you have received from God, you begin to treat other people like you've actually received it. I think that's what it means. It's not a standard like you have to forgive enough so then you can be forgiven. And if you only forgive 80%, God only forgives you 80%. I don't think it works like that. I think it is, though, an acknowledgement of what you needed and how you relate to God through mercy. So you're eager to relate to other sinners who have sinned against you the way you've sinned against others and have the same forgiveness you've experienced extended to others. That's what Christians do. They forgive those who harm them. And he says that's what it is to be in the kingdom. There's this merciful posture. Verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
right? And this is that place of, of, of seeing. This is that, this idea of, of, of a far-sighted, like engaging all of it, seeing God for who he really is. And the way that happens is by being single-minded, which is what pure means, having this integrity of our heart, saying it's through holiness that I actually see God, the scriptures say. And Jesus will talk about an outward kind of expression of purity and an inward heart-shaped expression of purity throughout this sermon. And what he's saying is that there are distortions in the world where things can look a certain way on the outside. What God is after is your actual heart. And when you believe these distortions, it actually blurs your vision of who God is. It's the pure in heart who see God as holy and good and righteous and see him as their treasure and see them as the one who will satisfy and see him as the one who will actually deal with that longing in their heart so they don't have to go after power or approval or comfort or control or manage or manipulate. It's through the pure in heart that they actually see God. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. God calls us to enact the peace that he has set in motion through his forgiveness on the cross. And it's a proclamation of where peace can be found. And it's living in a space of forgiveness with other people, right? So the peacemakers, he says, they're called sons of God. They look just like their father. They have their spitting image of their dad when they come to make peace because that's why Jesus came into the world. And would you look with me just for a second? If you have a ESV, look in verse 9 real close. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And there's a little one or a footnote. Do you see that if you're in the ESV Pew Bible? If you're not, you can flip over there or maybe just trust me for a moment. There's a footnote here. The editors are saying, hey, there's something about this word I want you to pay attention to. Because maybe you read this word and you go, okay, great. This is a masculine thing. This is a, a, a paternal kind of situation. This is something that's misogynistic. This is about men being called sons of God. I feel diminished. And the editors will say in this footnote, takes you back to the preface of how they've translated. They're saying, hey, there's times we're going to translate sons as sons and daughters when it just fits the context. But there's going to be other times we're going to leave it as sons when it's referencing adoption or inheritance to proclaim the good news to women as well as men that you are adopted and have rights as heirs of God. So ladies, far from this being a pushing you away or, or missing you, it's saying, hey, women, just like in the first century, the only people that got inheritance were sons. They inherited the wealth. They got the land. They got everything that was passed down. To, to call women sons isn't to be obtuse or culturally deaf or to, to be insensitive. It's to say, oh, regardless of your gender, you are adopted as heirs. The scripture would say co-heirs with Christ. He's Honoring women in this space to say, men and women who seek peace, you are like your father. And you have the full inheritance as sons of God, regardless of whether or not you are a man or a woman. It's counterintuitive, but actually is a more honoring thing than simply say sons and daughters. To put daughters in the position of inheriting sons is to elevate you in the love of God. Women, I know that throughout the history of the church, there's been lots of things done and said that have been really harmful. Would you just see the heart of God, though, is to welcome you as an equal, to honor you, to esteem you, to value you, to see you, and to say you, you are like your father when you bring peace, when what you pursue is actual peace in your heart. Blessed are the peacemakers because they're the ones who are called sons of God, men and women who seek peace inherit the kingdom. They're following after the king. They look like their 
Father. And in verse 10, he says again, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So verse 3, blessed are those who have nothing. Verse 10, blessed are those who are willing to give up everything for the kingdom. It's those who see the treasure and the prize as such that they're willing to sacrifice even their own bodies. And he just explains this in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. So this is a command. How do you apply this? It's not a command. It's instruction of, hey, when you follow Jesus, this is what will happen. People won't understand. They'll turn away from you. They'll malign you. They'll harm you just like they did Jesus and just like they did all the rest of the prophets. It sets a correction about what it means, right? Because following Jesus doesn't mean things get better and they're not easy. It means that they're worth it. It means you get in the next life all that you've longed for, and God walks with you in this life in the middle of your sadness and brokenness and longing and loss and hurt. He encounters you there with power and beauty and grace and love so that you could face loss in this life because you're not holding on to the things of the kingdom of this world. Your heart is tied to the kingdom of heaven. We need to hear this. Because days are coming, friends, where what we have enjoyed together in a country of ours which is rooted in freedoms that I'm so grateful for, as things begin to change, your allegiance to Jesus will be in sharp contrast to your allegiance to the world. And that will create a tension that will be unavoidable if you continue to say, I follow King Jesus. I'm listening to what he's done. I want to live like a kingdom citizen. I want to reflect back to people around me what God has done. You will face Pain and he says, Rejoice and be glad, which is so masochistic, unless it aligns you with the king himself who came, and it's through his suffering and through his loss that he actually purchased for us salvation. The reason why you can rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven is because that's the way it's always been. The prophets have always been persecuted, and Jesus himself is our example of that. So there's a ton there for us to face and to engage and to walk through. I think all those themes are laid out in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And in that space, we don't live in fear. We don't live with this abiding brokenness that we kind of get crushed by. We live with a lot of hope. We live with a lot of uh, desire. We live with a longing. We live in a space where God meets us. We live in a place where we feel free. We live in a place where, where God is close to us. We live in a place where, where we see God, where, where we have him, where he is close. The reason... You can endure a broken world as you have Jesus in the middle of it. What makes this list a blessed list is the one who is saying it. It's Jesus himself. That's how we can actually encounter this strange list as good news because Christ came into the world to make it possible for us to be forgiven and free. And as we trust him and follow him, oh, good good news for you. Let that vision correct you a little bit where you've been chasing other things. And let it instruct you of what the values are of the kingdom so that as we engage the rest of this sermon, our hearts are set up to actually follow the king. All right, so let's go to communion with some application in our mind. So we're going to take communion here in a moment. We have these little cups. And what we're trying to do as a church is say, hey, the first application should always be to trust Jesus. It's because of his broken body. That's where I want to start every time. But from that place, I want to engage with what God's stirring in my heart. So he has invited you to trust him. He's corrected you where you've been following another kingdom. And he's instructing you of what it looks like to live in his kingdom. Here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you to take communion as a follower of Jesus. Taste 
the bread, taste the juice, remember what Christ has done for you, and then ask him to speak to you. What's the invitation that you need to hear? What's the correction that you need to wrestle with? What is the instruction that he is ringing in your ears right now so that you could actually turn to and you could follow him? That's what I'd love for you to do in communion. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, communion is a, a thing for followers of Jesus, right? It's a declaration of their faith in him. But you can still pray where you are. Don't take communion because that's not where your hope is at. But would you ask God, what are you trying to say to me? Where are you trying to correct me? Where are you trying to show me a different kind of kingdom than what I've been living into? And what would it look like for me to actually follow you? You can just pray those kinds of prayers. So I'm going to pray now. I would love for you to take communion and then just spend some time in reflection and application. There's communion elements here in the front. If you didn't grab them, they're also in the back of the room. You'll have time. They'll they'll play over us for a moment, and then we'll sing together and we'll be dismissed. But let me just pray now and ask the king who gave this sermon about the kingdom of God to speak to you now with what he's done. Jesus, would you come and help us? Would you speak now loudly in the room through your spirit? And I pray that your broken body and shed blood, the way that you actually accomplished our salvation through the persecution, which is ringing in our ears in this last beatitude, would you make that good news for us? That you, you did break your body and you did shed your blood, so there is hope for us going forward. Jesus, come now and minister in the room through your broken body and shed blood as we remember what you've done, and how we can enter into the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.